church family, I'll invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 12. Uh, We will begin this chapter in our series in Mark. It will take us longer than the other chapters in Mark, I believe five different sermons. We kind of slowly walk through this last week of the life of Jesus before his crucifixion. Uh, As you find your place in God's Word and in your notes, Uh, I want to uh, just expound upon something Pastor Brian has already mentioned. He read scripture this morning and prayed for us uh, as we support uh, the orphan, the widow, and the unborn. That comes from one of our core values as a church, uh, that we we, uh, will show God's love to all people at all times while giving special support to the orphan, the widow, and the unborn. Uh, We make mention of this today, as Brian mentioned, because this is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. If you were here with us last Sunday for our third uh, Sunday evening service, uh, you got to hear from two ministries in our church that uh, really put action to this core value for us as we support life, both the Bear Foundation Partnership Uh, which uh, supports um, foster care and foster children here in Hampton Roads and our Mission Great Expectation team who disciple women and families who have chosen life through the Crisis Pregnancy Center here in Hampton Roads. Uh, Listen, this is the first Sanctity of Human Life Sunday that the church has celebrated since the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And some people thought that maybe Sanctity of Human Life Sunday would be done because of that court decision. Uh, Folks, that's very short-sighted if that was the way that you were thinking of it. The the overturning of Roe versus Wade was not the end goal. The, the, The end goal is creating a culture that values life from conception to natural death for all people. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the church of God should seek in our culture. Now, if you're new with us, we're not a politicized church. I don't preach on politics. We don't talk about who you should vote for, but we do take moral stands on things the Bible tells us to take moral stands on. And life is clearly one of those. But we're not just a church that says we support life. We do it. We put action to those words. And so um, last week, if you got to hear how those ministries are doing that, it was a great blessing to us. If you're interested in being involved in one of those ministries, why don't you come to the Connect team uh, after the service and we could get you involved in one of the ministries that help us show God's love to all people at all times. So I invite you to now stand with me as we read here the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 12. Mark tells us, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him. And sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. 
Then they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you today for the gathered body of believers this Nansman River Baptist Church, for your goodness and your grace to us, for the mercy that you have shown us, for the way, God, that you have used our church in many ways, for the sake of the gospel, for the glory and fame of your son, Jesus, who you sent out of your great love for us. Father, we pray that you would continue to use your church for your glory for the proclamation of your gospel to all people. Father, we ask now that you would help us in our great need to see and to know you as we look at your word, which teaches us of your son. God, would you convict our hearts to reveal to us truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we come into Mark chapter 12, Mark begins by recording a parable of Jesus. He actually says he begins to speak to them in parables, but then only tells one of the parables that he, Jesus, would have shared on that day and those days as he was teaching in the temple during his last week of life. See, the gospel of Mark does not record many of Jesus' parables for us. While there are some 35 to 40 parables of Jesus contained within the four Gospels, Mark chooses only to share six of them. This is the only major parable in the Gospel of Mark outside of chapter 4. If you'll think back with us a few months, chapter 4 was pretty much all parables and really the only parables other than This one, even though Mark 13 will end with brief illustrations that some consider to be parables, there were more illustrations than they are parables. As far as self-contained parables goes, this is it that Mark records from the last week of Jesus' life. And this parable sets the tone for the entire chapter. Really, it sets the tone for everything that Jesus will do uh, from his entry into the temple that we considered over the last couple of weeks now through the end of his life as he confronts the rulers there in Jerusalem. It is a shocking parable. It is a shocking parable for us because of the hard-heartedness and sinful nature of the tenants who not only abuse and kill messengers, but ultimately kill the master's son. But that is not why it was a shocking parable in Jesus' day. It is not why Mark uses this parable to set the tone for this chapter and for the last week in the life of Jesus. It was a shocking parable to the hearers of Jesus because the tenants are the bad guys, and the landowner is the good guy. 
when Jesus began to tell this story of a man who owned a vineyard and went into another land and leased it out, immediately his hearers would have thought the landowner will be the bad guy and the tenants will be the good guy. And I'll explain to you why in a moment. But that is not the case. Jesus is directly confronting here and in this chapter the ruling elite in Jerusalem, the organization known as the Sanhedrin. And here is what he is saying. And you know, with, with, clear and, with clarity, that they do not represent God for the people. That the people should not look to the Sanhedrin to see God, but that they should look to Jesus. And that's what we're going to see through this parable today, that the Father reveals himself most fully to us through the person and work of his Son. That we look to Jesus to see God himself. So we'll see this in three parts through this parable. The first is the enduring patience of God on display. Look back with me in verse 1, and we'll also look at the last verse to make sure that we understand what is happening here. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. Now, let me just quickly explain to you the setting of the parable. It was a common occurrence in this day that a uh, foreign landowner would come and buy land, establish a vineyard, establish a farm, establish some type of money-making operation, and then go home after having leased the land and the operation to tenants. It was actually the most common form of land ownership in first century Israel that almost all of Galilee and most of the Jordan River Basin was not owned by Israelites. It was owned by foreign landowners. And the Israelites hated <laughs> this system. They despised it. They despised their occupiers who have come in centuries before from Greece, Egypt, and more recently from Rome, who bought up all of the good land and was only leaving a certain percentage to those who would run it. In many cases, these landowners would go away for years at a time. And in this parable, that's the way that we should read this. Years, the landowner is gone and then would send a servant to collect what would be maybe 30 up to as much as 50% of the profits from what had been produced out of that land. Now, when we read a parable, it's important for us to identify what is happening in the parable with what Jesus, who is telling the parable, is wanting to instruct. And so we have to ask, who represents whom here? Well, the way that Jesus tells this parable for us tells us instantly that the owner of the land is God himself. We know this because of the words that Jesus chooses to use in the parable directly align with an Old Testament passage from Isaiah chapter 5. We're going to go back and forth into Isaiah 5 to help us see several things from this parable throughout the sermon today. Let's just consider the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 5. 
Isaiah writes, let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted with planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewned out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Jesus is telling this parable using these words. Do you notice many of these same words, both vineyard and digging a pit and a wine press and a tower? This this would have instantly caused Jesus's hearers, particularly those of the Sanhedrin, educated in the Old Testament, educated in the writings of Isaiah to, to make the connection that God is the one planting the vineyard. It would seem odd and again shocking to them that they would that Jesus would tell a parable where God is the one whom is represented by those who they hate in their land. And they are the tenants that God has leased the land to, that he's left in control of the land. We know this by skipping to the end of the parable and seeing their reaction in verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So this parable, which demonizes the tenants of the land, not the landowner, but the tenants that were entrusted with the operations of the land, is about the Sanhedrin. It is about the ruling elite in Jesus's day there in Israel. They are the ones that Jesus is telling the parable about. And they have perceived this and are seeking to arrest him. They want to do away with Jesus, which eventually some days later they will ultimately do. But they're afraid of the people because the people are now gathering around Jesus. They're kind of flocking to this teaching, but they have rightly perceived that the parable is about them. So the vineyard, like the fig tree in last week's passage, most often represents Israel in the Old Testament. So what we have is God, a landowner, planting a vineyard, his people of Israel, those whom he has covenanted with and given a land for their possession, who are supposed to be a light and a beacon of God to the world from this place. That is the purpose of the vineyard. And the tenants are those who were entrusted with leading and guiding the people to fulfill their covenant relationship with God. In Jesus' day, they were organized within the Sanhedrin. So here, the setting is God's covenant people that he has planted and entrusted leadership to tenants who ultimately do some very bad things. Look with me in verse two. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get, them from, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So over the course of time in the parable, the landowner, the master of the land, sends servant after servant to do business with those whom had been entrusted with the land. And they begin by beating one and then ultimately 
killing another, and some they beat, and some they killed. So from the story, we get the sense that this goes on for a long period of time, that it's just not one or two servants, but servant after servant that the tenants reject. And this had been the regular practice of God's covenant people who for centuries had rejected God's messengers. So the messengers here in verses two through five represent the prophets that God had sent in the Old Testament, really ending with John the Baptist. Remember, Jesus in the previous story at the end of chapter 11 questions the Sanhedrin about their understanding of who John the Baptist was and their rejection of John the Baptist's teaching and John the Baptist's ministry, really the last of the Old Testament prophets for us. That he was the last in a long line of prophets who came with a message from God to his covenant people and the leaders of God's covenant people rejected. Jeremiah chapter seven tells us of this regular practice of rejecting God's messengers. Jeremiah says, From the days that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all of my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So what Jeremiah says, what the Lord says through Jeremiah, several hundred years before Jesus is telling this parable, going all the way back to Moses leading God's people out of Israel, is that there was a, or out of Egypt to Israel, is there was a regular practice of God's people, particularly in leadership, of rejecting the corrective message of God's prophets that over and over again, they rejected them. And this was the normative practice of God's people all the way back into Egypt. So he says, from the very beginning, I would send my messengers to you and you would reject them. And he says that they were stiff-necked. They were unwilling to listen. And that one generation, this is the way that Jeremiah ends verse 26, they did worse than their their fathers. So one generation persecuted the prophets in a worse way than their fathers did. Now, if we look back to the story of Jesus here in this parable in Mark chapter 12, that's the same sense that we get, right? They beat the first one. They hit the second one on the head. Eventually, they're killing them. That it gets worse and worse. And this is, this is the progressive story of God's prophets in the Old Testament. That just one after another, wicked generations reject the prophets of God. The author of Hebrews tells us of this same progression in Hebrews chapter 11. After having listed The faith demonstrated by Old Testament saints, the author of Hebrews says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David and Samuel, the the prophets. And listen to what he says about the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, but put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. 
the author of Hebrews is agreeing with Jeremiah all those years ago, which is agreeing with Jesus here in the parable that this was the regular practice of the leaders of Israel. That they would, because of the power that they desired, abuse their relationship and abuse the trust that God had given to them. And God would send prophets and those prophets would be rejected. That God would send messengers and in many cases, those messengers would be imprisoned, persecuted, and even killed. And yet, God is demonstrating great patience in the midst of it. God is demonstrating great patience. Even in this parable, it's not just one message. I mean, if you sent one messenger, if you're the landowner and you send one messenger to go get your money and the messenger comes back and is like, man, they beat me up and sent me back. We would all be, we would lose our patience in that moment, wouldn't we? That's not what God does though. In the parable, what does God do? He sends another messenger and another messenger. And century after century, God continues to send messengers to his people. Back in Isaiah chapter 5, after establishing his vineyard, Isaiah says this, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Isaiah paints for us again the long-suffering patience of God towards us, towards his people, that God's patience is not like ours. While we would be landowners who immediately would have escalated this situation. God continues to send his messengers century after century to his people. God sent messengers to correct them, to gently pull them back. And God's patience is still shown to us today in the same way. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says to us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Hear me today, friend. God is patient towards you. Now, don't take the patience of God for granted. Recognize that there is more to this story, but stop and pause for the Christian in the room. Stop and pause for a minute and be grateful that God showed great patience towards you. That even yet, as you are not fully sanctified, you are not fully like Jesus, that God continues to show great patience towards you. Oh, goodness of God, that he shows in his patience, bringing us along little by little. For the unbeliever in the room, recognize this, that if you are hearing this today, it is because of the great patience of God that he is being so generous to you so gracious to you, so loving towards you that he would say that they would hear the gospel yet again, that they would hear the good news yet again that you have rejected earlier in your life, but God is still patiently sending his message to you because God has great and enduring patience towards us. Number two, the unfailing love of God made manifest. So God has, or the landowner, God in the story, messenger after messenger, some they beat, some they kill, all they reject. And so what does the landowner do? He says in verse six, and he still had one other, 
a beloved son. But finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. A new character is introduced here in the parable. The landowner, master of the land, representing God, the tenants, representing those who are entrusted with leadership of God's vineyard, Israel, his covenant people. Messengers, the Old Testament prophets, who century after century brought warning to those people. And now a new character enters, a beloved son, the one and only. He had but one left. And we get the sense that there is one left to send, the one who is most dear to the landowner. And as God had sent messenger after messenger, now there is one left to send his one and only son. Here in the parable, the son is Jesus. John 3, 16 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave not one of his sons, but his only one. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Maybe the most obvious allegorical connection in any of Jesus' parables is this one. That now in the fullness of time, God sends his son. We've moved really in the application of the parable in Jesus' day to real time. He's looking back on those messengers who came time after time, final one being John the Baptist. But now we're in the moment. The son is here. He's standing in front of the tenants saying to them, God had one left to send to you. There is but one left that the father could send, his beloved son, saying, surely they will respect my son. And then Jesus looks to the end of that week in his own life and tells it in parable form. Verse 7, but the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. It's important for us, I believe, to because Jesus reveals it to us. So when we see parables, it's important. The, the content of the parables are important. And um, the motive of the tenants is told to us here. The motive is clear. If we kill the heir, then we become the heir. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Just take a step out of the parable and go into Jesus' day. I remember I told you, this is a shocking parable in Jesus' day because this happened a lot. Like in real life, it happened a lot. The, the people were regularly plotting for how they could get back their land from the foreign landowners. It, we actually have documents. There, there are documents that are preserved from this period of time that show the legal battles and actually wars that, that people would go to. I mean, th this is not some parable. I mean, we don't really get it. This is not some parable that was foreign to them. It was an everyday occurrence. But Jesus is the son coming to the tenants and saying, Surely you're going to listen. And what do they do? They kill him because they want to stay in control. They want to be the heirs. And this is the desire of every sinful heart, to control 
of the vineyard. There are times preaching through this that sermons, and I want to be careful with what I'm saying here. There are times preaching through things like this that, that people can think sermons sound somewhat anti-Semitic, as if the Jewish people were, were wrong. And they are wrong. The Sanhedrin is wrong here. But if somehow it, they're, they're wrong because of who they are, listen to me. We would all be the Sanhedrin in our sinfulness. Our sinful hearts always desire control of our vineyard. It's what we want. We don't want in our sinfulness to do what God wants us to do. We don't want to surrender control to him, the owner of the vineyard. We want to manage our own control of the vineyard. This goes all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve wanted control. They wanted to eat what they wanted to eat. And this is the story, the meta-narrative of humanity in Scripture is that humans in their sinfulness want to stay in control. Oh, we see it all the time even in our own world that people desire power and control and ultimately this speaks of our sinful hearts that given the same opportunity, we too very likely would have been like the Sanhedrin outside of the grace of God made known to us, we would have done the same thing. And yet, God sends his son anyway. God sends his son anyway. Why? Because not only is he patient towards us, he is incredibly loving towards us. In Romans 5, the apostle Paul says, but God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we still desired control, even while we were still tenants wanting to control the vineyard, God sends his son anyway. In 1 John the Apostle John in chapter 4 says it like this, and this is love, not that we have loved God, because we didn't love God first, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Jesus being sent by the Father to come to us is the greatest demonstration of love in the history of the world. The Father, the landowner, sending his Son to undeserving tenants who have rejected messenger after messenger is the story of humanity, and yet God still sends Jesus to us. Why? Because he loves us. <laughs> There is no greater news than I can tell you today that not only is God patient towards you, but he is not patient towards you so you will fix yourself. He is patient towards you and loving enough to send Jesus to die in your place so you don't have to fix yourself, but he can give you his righteousness, taking your sin upon himself. The son of God freely walked into the vineyard knowing he would die showing us the love that God has for us. Number three, the righteous judgment of God personified. This isn't just a story of patience and love. It is also a story of judgment. It is a judgment parable citing Isaiah 5, which was a judgment prophecy. Look at verses 9 through 11. What will the owner of the vineyard do? So we're fast forwarding in time, right? God has sent Jesus, Jesus has been killed. What is it that God will now do? 
he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus concludes by saying that judgment is coming. That because of their rejection of the son, judgment is coming. Notice that he does not destroy the vineyard. He destroys the tenants. But let's go to Isaiah 5 and see what he does there. Picking up in verse 5. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah and its pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness. Behold, an outcry. The story of Jesus The story that Jesus tells here ends differently than the story that Isaiah tells in Isaiah 5, but they're both accurate. Here's why they're both accurate. Isaiah 5 is judgment against God's people for their sin prior to the exile. And what Isaiah says, not long after Isaiah says it, God begins first to send the Assyrians to Israel and ultimately the Babylonians into Judah and the description of The land is exactly what God had said it would be, but it doesn't remain. Isaiah has other other prophecies and there are other prophets who talk of a restoring and God does ultimately do that and restores Israel to the land leading to the time of Jesus. And so it is not the covenant people of God who experience judgment in Jesus' story. It is the tenants. It is the one who were entrusted to guide the people. And their power is taken away from them. And they are destroyed, we're told in verse 9. And the vineyard is given to others. So we have to ask this question. Who are the others that the vineyard is given to? Because the owner gives the vineyard to someone else. Well, in the immediate sense of the passage. Now, get this picture. Jesus is likely in the temple. Crowds gathered around. The closest people to him is this ragtag gang of fishermen and tax collectors and uneducated Galileans, and they're looking at the ruling elite of the day, these well-dressed, pompous Sanhedrin members who are, Jesus is now telling this story, who is it that the owner gives the vineyard to? Well, it's these people. It's Peter and James and John and Levi. It's it's these these disciples of Jesus. He's going to take it from them. He's going to take it from you and going to give it to them. And ultimately, it's given to the church of God. The authority to man his vineyard and to be his people is no longer contained in this one place. But now, as we saw last week in Jesus' interaction in the temple, is spreading to the world. And that's important for Mark's audience because Mark is writing most likely to Roman Christians, Gentiles, who would not have been included but now are included. And so the judgment is for those who were seeking to keep the power to themselves and not be this beacon of hope to the world. But notice who their judgment is. The judgment here is personified for us, that Jesus is their judgment. Standing before them is their judgment. Have you not read? And he quotes from 
Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes that Jesus standing before them rejected. This is the most important piece of the whole puzzle. Without him, the entire thing falls apart. That's what a cornerstone is. A cornerstone is the most important piece in ancient building. And without it, nothing else would be in place. And he's saying, you who have rejected me will be judged standing right in front of you. And once we walk our way through Mark chapter 12, we're going to Mark 13. And Jesus pronounces more fully this coming judgment that is standing in their midst. Now, you don't have to go far to get from Mark 12 to Acts 4. Probably we, we would be able to count this in a matter of weeks. You may say some months, but just some weeks later, at the end of this first week, Jesus is crucified, ascend, or is crucified, resurrected, 40 days later, ascends to heaven. And then some time after that, weeks, a couple of months maybe after that, Peter and John heal someone and they're drugged before the Sanhedrin. And we're told this, the same group of people, mind you, in Acts chapter 4. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were the high priestly family. That ruling elite that Jesus has just challenged some months later. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today, consider a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed. Let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Standing before these same men some weeks, maybe a few months later, Peter pronounces the same judgment of Jesus. You rejected the cornerstone. You who should have known, you who were entrusted to guide God's covenant people, you crucified him, the son of God who came to us by which salvation is provided alone. That Jesus is how we know God. And it is Jesus who stands in judgment over those who reject him. Now let me make another appeal. Because I recognize maybe there is someone here who has never trusted in Jesus. Know this, this judgment is coming to you as well, my friend. Peter, at the end of his life, 2 Peter chapter 3 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This day is coming like a thief. I don't know when. You don't know how long the patience of God will endure for you, but it is offered to you in love today to come to him through Jesus, his son. You can stand with the Sanhedrin and reject the cornerstone of God's redemptive plan, or you can see Jesus for who he is, the son of God sent for you in love and trust in him for salvation today.
So what? Church family, our response to this is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the son of God, who has provided the way for us to know God. Jesus isn't a way for us to know God. He is the way for us to know God. And it is through fixing our eyes on him, believing in his person and work for us in our place that we can be right with God, that we can know God and be forgiven by God and be brought into God's family. We looked earlier at Hebrews 11, which talked about the rejection of those messengers and prophets. At the very start of the next chapter, the author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The messengers all came. And they told us that one more was coming. And that one more came. His name is Jesus. And we know God by fixing our eyes on him church. Even yet, as we deal with our own sin, we sometimes struggle with wanting to control the vineyard. We sometimes rise ourselves into a position of prominence like the Sanhedrin because our sin draws us to do that. And so this isn't just a message for lost people to look to Jesus and to be saved, although it is, and there is an appeal here, believe in Jesus and be saved. But I recognize I'm preaching to the church of God this morning, gathered, recognizing that there are hundreds in this room with credible testimonies of faith in Jesus, all of which who still struggle with sin nature. And here would be my encouragement to you. Never take your eyes off Jesus. You see, he says, run, the, run with endurance the race that is set before us. It requires endurance. It's, for many, a long race. A race filled with trials and trouble and temptation. And yet Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame, finished his race, and is sitting at the right hand of God. And so we keep our eyes on him, trusting in the one who was sent by the master of the vineyard to bring us to him. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let us not miss him. Let us not miss how your word points to him. Let us not miss how your word helps us to become like him by the power of your Holy Spirit working in our lives and working in our church. We do pray, God, for those who would hear this, who have never trusted in Jesus, that thought that they could control their own vineyard in such a way that somehow would please the owner of the vineyard. Help them to trust in Jesus today, we pray. Thank you that the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Church family. 
We're going to stand in a moment and sing, but before we do that, let me just one final appeal. If you've never trusted in Jesus, at the end of the service, I'll be in the lobby, come find me. Let's talk about how you can put your faith in Jesus because God's patience and love towards you is extended today. But we as a body sing of the cornerstone that God has placed in his redemptive plan, the one and only son, Jesus. So let's worship him together as we stand.